it's not a typical place. It's a place where people can open up their minds to other instruments, other styles, other genres in ways that at another music school they would not be really permitted to do. A place where people can pivot towards who they are. Hello listeners, students, music students, faculty, staff, literally anyone who somehow came across this podcast. I'm your host, Henry Lee. I'm the host of CPP Music Couches, a podcast where we basically showcase and highlight um, this Cal Poly Pomona music department community, which pretty much involves um, like the music department, um, students, faculty, staff, literally anyone that's like involved. And I'm excited because this episode is the pilot episode, literally the first episode. So if you're listening to this right now, you are a special listener. <laughs> the following interview was recorded live on November 13th, 2020. We have a special guest today, Dr. Peter Yates. Peter Yates is a performer, composer, educator, and multimedia artist. His work as a guitarist and chamber musician includes 16 European tours with the Elgar Yates Guitar Duo and continues with the voice guitar duo, Guitaria and Ensemble Fret. These groups have emphasized new and original composition and have premiered over a hundred works, including many of his own. Peter Yates directs the UCLA and Guitar Polypomona ensembles as well. Today, this episode of CBP Music Couches is dedicated to honoring Peter Yates and his years serving as an educator for Cal Poly Pomona. Dr. Yates, would you like to say hello to the audience? Hello, everyone. I'm very honored to hear the words, uh, you know, couches uttered. Couches, I've always thought of as a sacred student space that no sullied faculty member should ever have ever be welcome to sit at. So here I am in this virtual world, finally being able to sit down at the couches with you all, which is, a, as I say, a great honor. Pleased to be here. Wow, a sacred space. <laughs> That's like a nice way to like word it because I, I talk about it all the time to uh, prospective uh, faculty who want to teach here and so forth. I say, you know, or also to students coming in, the couches are a special place. You know, I teach at UCLA also. They don't have a couches. A lot of places don't. Uh, and they try to create some sense of community. But uh, Cal Poly, we're fortunate. Yeah, it's definitely really good space for not just only like students, but any staff and faculty to just rest or talk to students as well. So we are in November right now and the pandemic has been going on for since like March. I was just wondering how is quarantine going for you? Well, I've been comparing people from different coasts and talking to them. Some of this is temperamental. For example, if you're someone like me who likes to practice and compose and uh, write words and uh, you know step out into the backyard every now and then, this is not such a bad circumstance. I remember when I was in my 20s, I thought, you know, it would be really good to be arrested and thrown into a minimum security prison so I could just be fed you know, and have a place to sleep and work on my stuff. Um, so that's a little bit what this is like. Um, it's like a very pleasant house arrest for me. That's because uh, 
you know, I'm, I tend to be more of a hermit type with respect to my creative work, and I don't uh, need a lot of uh, human contact in the way that some people do. What little I need, I treasure, but it, does, it isn't as intense for me. Well, when I speak with people in the East, you know, where they have a little apartment, one of the most expensive places on the planet, New York, and they have to be inside all wintertime with nowhere to go, and it's freezing outside, that's going to get intense. So I have no particular complaints compared to what some people are having to confront. And I think people are doing well. The, the danger there is that we think we've earned some credit here, you know, after we've been so good for so long. Uh, but no, that's not the way the, the virus looks at it. The virus says, I could get any of you suckers anytime. Just try me, you know. So we have to be responsible this holiday season if we can be. Everyone's successful to it as long as they're like, there's like no care yet. Yeah. I know recently some like medical company just announced that they had, that they had like successful trials has like a 90% effective rate. So we're just waiting on that. That's like one good thing that I've heard. Yeah. Suddenly big pharma doesn't seem so bad anymore, right? You know, we, Pfizer, that's a big pharma, but they are going to be needed to help us out. Uh, very interesting. The couple that have done the research on that uh, particular vaccine. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You did like bring up like arrest and like how you became like a as well. Would you call yourself an introverted or extroverted person? Uh, well, I am afflicted with this sort of teaching thing that some people have where they uh, want to share what they do with the world, uh, which is a great affliction, you know, otherwise I could just sort of uh, relax. But instead, I have this missionary zeal, you know, to spread the gospel in the classroom and so forth. So I get a lot of social interaction from that. Um, from decades of being there talking to people and in front of them. So I don't feel under noticed. I don't feel as if the world doesn't pay me enough attention and all those good things. I, um, I have had plenty of that. So that's one kind of social activity that I have a lot of. I think my temperament would have been better suited to that of, let's say, a starving writer or a painter who sits inside all day working and then goes out at night to a cafe to visit with people as it is i'm with people all day and at night i'm too exhausted to hang out with others so i'm not a complainer type you know i like i like what what i've got i noticed that like anyone like pursuing entertainment are like trying to like gain attention but i've noticed as well people they're like either like not being as social as usual or they become more social through online methods, which is pretty interesting as well. Yeah, I've done that as well. I'm, for example, for me, the telephone was always a, an anathema. I never liked the telephone because it was always interrupting me and uh, it never felt real to me. The way some people, you see them talking to the phone and they're gesticulating, they're totally into it as if they were really with the person. It never had that feel for me. But now, uh, under these remote circumstances, I find myself using the telephone, you know. I put it on speakerphones, feels a little better. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It, people, have, people have evolved and changed. You mentioned in your notes social media. 
which I used to take part in and stopped doing, uh, slowly stopped doing just because it didn't suit me very well. You mentioned, uh, you know, people trying to get attention. There's a lot of people kind of, I'm going to get my brand together on social media. <laughs> I got to really uh, fit uh, my way of thinking about the day, you know. So I have pretty much noticed that I've ceased to use it, not, not because I'm against it, but it uh, takes a lot of time and it's of a different flavor than uh, suits my nature, I think. We kind of like have to like adapt to this use of electronics and social media. Would you say you're like a fan of snail mail? I used to use it a lot. I don't, like everybody else, I don't use it so much. Snail mail, you know, people have mentioned that what that did do over the centuries was make people sit down and think and put their thoughts together and and package it in a way that people don't really do anymore. That's that might be a loss, you know, there is that problem. So in that sense, sure, I'm a fan of it. I mean, if you, I have lots of books that are collections of letters of very interesting people where, you know, just based on their correspondence. Uh, some of them are musicians throughout history. We know a lot about their inner minds just from what they wrote. And I don't know how we're gonna get that going forward. You know, that's gonna be, that's a little bit sad to think about. Honestly, recently, I've been like writing more emails, but I've been like taking the time to write my emails as well. Yeah. Okay. So that would be a good adaptation to say, if I'm going to write this, this email, especially if it's to a friend or colleague whom I value, I might take the time to, to do it well. Uh, the hard part there, if you're a chair of a music department, is there's 50 other emails waiting for you. <laughs> Since I'm part of like student government on campus as well. I get like emails. I'm just like, this is a lot. <laughs> How can I get this to go away? That's not. <laughs> when I just get email, I'm just like already stressed nowadays. <laughs> How did you become a chamber musician, artist, and educator? Uh, well, my family background was was sort of mixed in that regard. The family trade was medicine, um, and among families, there is a tendency for certain generation of a family to say, screw that, I'm not going to do what my family did. And that my siblings and I were that way. None of us became doctors like the others. My grandparents on one side were both doctors. My parents were both doctors. So, you know, I and my brothers and sisters just naturally moved away from that, which is kind of a normal thing. Um, but there was no tradition in my family for going into the arts. There was emphasis on art and culture. Uh, a lot of the people in my family did play music, almost always the piano. Um, and they, so they were, and some of them really would have liked to be musicians, but that was not something that was considered uh, a reputable thing to do as a career. So for that reason, it took me a long time as a young person and as a student to decide that that's what I was going to do. Instead, I just did it myself while I went to school and studied pre-med and things like that. But I eventually got around to it. And in that particular floundering, it was very helpful to run into a mentor, someone who was uh, the age I am now, uh, whose name was Ted Norman. And he was a guitar instructor who actually was a very fine violinist as well. So he had a great knowledge of 
music of very important quality and a way of teaching that was intelligent and imaginative. So he stood out a lot compared to the other people around, especially in the guitar world. So I and a lot of people that I now I'm still friends with were his students and that was an important guide for me. Also, I, I had a girlfriend in high school whose parents were musicians, classical musicians. And I didn't know at the time that I probably, you know, gravitated towards her partly for that reason. And I learned a lot from that family about the arts and about music. So if I look back, I can say that, yeah, I, I did sort of gravitate towards people who were important. Ted Norman taught a class, a guitar class, uh, for UCLA Extension, which was just, you know, a summer class kind of thing that I took. And that was really an important way in for me. I remember the first time walking across the UCLA campus to get to that class in the summertime. And I had a cheap guitar that someone was throwing away and it had no saddle. The saddle is the part of the guitar near where the peg, where the, it attaches to the body. And the saddle was missing, so it was buzzing and flopping around. So on the way to class, I found a eucalyptus tree and snapped off a twig and stuck it in there as a saddle. And it worked rather well. I think I kept that on there for two or three years, you know, as the saddle for the guitar. But that's where I was starting, in a way, with classical guitar. Before that, I was a rock and roller like everybody else. And, you know, but I always enjoyed that. I still do, I value it, but I always was interested in notes interacting with each other in more intimate ways. Wow. Um, I also came from a background where like, I have family who are like wanting me to be, be part of STEM or like become a lawyer, anything that involves high income, but I took a jab at music during my first semester of college. And then I switched over to becoming a music major as well. That was like pretty interesting finding like eucalyptus and then just using that as a saddle. Um, are you an instrument maker? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I'm one of these people and I don't recommend this to my students unless they have it as well. I don't feel comfortable unless I've got a, an electric drill in one hand and my guitar in the other, you know, I like to go in there and change things around. But as you know, especially in all of the instruments areas, their young people are taught, you know, don't touch the strings, don't touch the bow, you know, you're going to break this. Um, you're taught to revere the instrument because it's valuable and precious and young people need to learn how to take care of things. But that has a negative side, which is that people are kind of afraid of their instruments. They don't want to get involved in changing them around. They think they have to go to a luthier to do that. Um, but after a while, I realized the guitar I had was a pretty good guitar, but I wasn't going to sell it to anybody. There wasn't any uh, investment value to protect. It was going to go to the grave with me. So why couldn't I make it my own? Why couldn't I learn from how it was made? So if you look at my guitar today, you'll see lots of little drill holes and experimental attachment points that come from a long time of investigating how to hold the darn thing, how to string it, um, 
how to work, understanding how strings work with bows, without. So for me, luthery has been a personal journey. I, I would not really make an instrument for someone else, um, although I have helped people convert things and so forth. But I think that uh, having the courage to go in there and experiment is very important because there's a tendency for people to think at any given time, we have perfected the violin. We have perfected the guitar. Uh, the past is nothing but a progression to the perfection of the moment. That's always nonsense. And the more you read about the past, you realize that that comes and goes in waves and new things are tried. And you don't want to be stuck with just what the puny present thinks is perfect. The present always was weird. On the one hand, it overvalues itself. And on the other hand, everybody hates the present. They prefer the past or the future. So I don't understand. We're all like looking ways to like advance to new things. And I feel like sticking into the same things, you just wouldn't like really advance to like create anything new or anything that sounds new. I like I have a VLO, but I'm not like, because I paid for that thing for myself, I'm not able to like afford another VLO. So I'm yeah. intimidated just to like experiment on that thing. But I'm like tending to like kind of experiment with my base just because it was like used already and bought it for like a little cheaper. There you go. That, there you that go. seems replaceable. So, yeah. so we're, we're actually in a golden age of getting pretty decent cheap instruments. So you could get a cheap viola from somewhere overseas that would be scary cheap, you know, not even used. When I make arpeggionas, I'm using quarter-sized cellos, and for 300 bucks, I get this extraordinary value. Unbelievable. Um, you mentioned newness, um, and it is true that we are taught that we should seek the new, that somehow it's going to be better tomorrow and everything's going to be improved. Uh, in the arts, you got to be careful, though, because if you, the more you look at the past, you realize, yeah, new in the future is good. But if you're only tilted in that direction, you're going to fall over in the arts. The past has just as much to teach. And when you say, I don't want to change my viola, that's honoring the past. A lot of experience has gone into making that viola what it is. And I'm a, re I'm a wheel reinventor. I mean, I go in there and I reinvent the wheels to understand what's going on. But it teaches me that in the arts, arts are not progressive. They don't get better. Mm -hmm. You know, the, when, I, when you look at the works of John Doland, the great lutenist from the 17th century, that dude could play. He could compose. And the weather was bad. He stayed in all the time and practiced. He was good. He was the Jimi Hendrix of his time. So, yeah, you learn to be a healthy person that the, the present is like a balance point between the wonderful future and the wonderful past. It's half and half. It's not like the sciences. It's like basically don't forget the past yeah. as well. I don't mind repeating the past uh, as I grow up towards the future. You know, it teaches me a lot. This is like a lot of like rethinking as well that you have within like the present past of music. Yeah, my, you know, I was reading a student comment once, you know, when you have student reviews. This was years ago, but I'm sure it would be true today. There was a place where the student could say, what did you think of Yates's class? And he said, well, it was a good class. I could have used a little less of the philosophy. 
I thought, oh, that's pretty good. I like that. Uh, but especially now, as I uh, as I go on to retire, I'm thinking, you know, it would be a waste if I didn't give full bore, both guns blazing, as much philosophy as I can cram in there for people. They can ignore it. They can do whatever they want with it. But if you don't chip that in, then what are you doing as an educator? You're wasting everybody's time. An example of that is the seminar class I teach where uh, a, a typical model in the seminar class would be, well, let's let the students evaluate each other, critique each other, which is, can be a healthy thing, can be useful. So I was doing my seminar class like that for a while because that's what people did. And I thought, wait a minute. I've been doing this for centuries. I know a lot about it. And here we're just having people who starting out talking to each other. That's a waste. So now they have to listen to me. And then, you know, I'm gone and they move on with their lives. So um, you don't know what's going to stick and you don't know who's going to value what you have to say. But if you don't say it, and I don't know what you're doing in the teaching business. Things don't really last long. <laughs> but if you're surrounded by people who are invested, they're able to like pass that on to others and yeah. will value what you say, whether you're like here today or not even like here, it'll still be somewhere. <laughs> you're right, Henry. It's a question of pay, uh, paying it forward, as people say. I'm sure you've heard that expression that, of course, now my great teachers and mentors are all in their graves, so I can't pay them back, but I can pay forward what they taught me and what I've learned. Um, it's similar to when you give a concert. You know, you don't know when you give a concert how people have been reached by what you're doing. They will all clap because they're polite people. But if you think back to when you went to a show or a concert that really changed your life, did you go backstage and tell the person that my life was changed? No. You went home and you talked with your friends about it and you were excited and you worked on, on what you were doing with greater zeal, but you never told them. So when you give your show, you're telling somebody else that. You're giving the show that was like what was important to you. It's based on faith. You don't really usually know that you've reached anybody. I feel like musicians can be unintended about this. For me, I love going to concerts and that stuff, but I rarely get to like thank the musicians or the artists just because there's like a lot of people or if like the musicians, musicians just like drift after the show. But I feel, I feel that's like, something important to just say thanks knowing there's like more than just performing there's like more purpose it's like inspiring you yeah, and you're right sometimes we feel especially as young people like it's not our place really to approach this wonderful artist and tell them you know little old me thinks you're great uh so yeah that's normal it's completely normal but all it means is that as we go forward as expressive artists we have a way of uh, thanking that is um, separated in time from the ones who gave to us. Separated in time? Well, 
say I was 19 and I went to a concert that changed my life. Mm. But now I give a concert today and I'm giving something to an audience. I'm thanking that person who gave that concert when I was 19, you know. In retrospect. Exactly. We know that you tour with people and like musicians and that stuff and that you collaborate with artists as well. I was just wondering what are a couple like your favorite people to collaborate with, favorite groups as well? Well, I've been fortunate. Um, nowadays, I'm doing more what I envisioned that I would do when I started out studying music formally, which was not until college. And in college, I had this idea that I would be using the guitar in a kind of composer-performer way, working with collaborating with people and also with voice in mixed groups that somehow was in the back of my mind. Um, and nowadays that is what I do, at least when we are doing things and not stuck in our houses under COVID. Um, so I have ended up doing close to what I had in mind. And by the way, I've noticed that about my peers and my students that you don't always know that you're going to end up where you had in mind, but it tends to happen. So if I look around about people around me that I went to school with decades ago, they're all doing things that seem very suited to what I thought they might do then, but it can be a circuitous path. So in my case, um, I spent you know, 25 years in a guitar duo that was very successful and had a very special quality that is rare in terms of the musical connection between me and my partner. That was like uh, the easiest way to express it would be to say that I knew that we were always within reach of something really good when we worked and performed. And that's not that common in music. Um, so for those years, 25 years or so, I specialized uh, as a guitar duo performer. Why? Because of that special quality and also because it was successful um, in a way that I knew was rare. You don't walk away from something like that. Um, but it wasn't what I had had in mind at first. So it was like a detour, a very productive detour, a worthwhile detour, but it was not really what I had thought I wanted to do necessarily which is more like what I'm doing now, uh, which is collaborating with a variety of different people and involving the human voice more, things like that. You keep working with your art and being surrounded by people who are able to like work with you as well. I feel like these things will like eventually guide you to like what you will become. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, it can seem scary at first, of course, like, where is the place for little old me in this world? Um, and we all have to find a way to pay the rent. And that's scary. But especially nowadays for young people, the things are more expensive. There's more people. There's, le you know, there's a third of a much, a third as much of the world to go around as when I was born. There's just three times as many people. You know, you think about that and say, whoa. For me, a uh, reassuring bridge was I happened to play guitar and that's, uh, is a very popular instrument 
and it was always possible to earn my living teaching guitar, guitar lessons, privately in the backs of music stores, at schools. Um, that's not true necessarily if you play clarinet, so I've learned to respect that. Teaching a kid in the back of a music store how to pretend he's a rock star is a very important opportunity <laughs> um, for a number of reasons uh, that you wouldn't necessarily have if you, let's say you played oboe, you know, to pick an even more specialized little niche. You can't pay the rent teaching the oboe to someone who wants to be a rock star. So uh, that's been a thread throughout my life, is always teaching somebody something about music using the guitar. And uh, so that helped build that bridge that you're talking about between what it is you have in mind and what it is you end up doing. So I didn't have in mind that I was going to be teaching guitar for my life, but it acted as a thread of continuity as other things came and went so that I ended up more where I had in mind, if that makes any sense. For other people, it says something else. I've known musicians who were what they did was teach what do you call it, substitute teach in the schools. So they could teach substitute when they needed to. It's like, oh, I need some money, I better do some substitute teaching. That worked really well for some people. I had a brilliant student at uh, Cal Poly and then at UCLA uh, getting his master's and doctorate, whose family were uh, window washers, you know, on buildings. And that was really good whenever he needed money. He could window wash and there were a lot of windows that needed washing and as a matter of fact i had another student who did the, no she did uh, holiday decorations for windows it was a little more joy based but uh so that kind of work really worked well for him you know he uh, could use it or lose it or i mean use it as he needed to um, so everybody so you know they call it a day job but different day jobs suit themselves better or worse to someone who's going to be a lifer in music. Teaching is, of course, one of them. So with my students, some of them, you know, I try to find out, you know, are you interested in teaching? Have you had any students? And I've had some brilliant students who say, no, I hate it. I hate teaching. It's really good to know that up front. Don't get your doctorate in music. If you, you know, do something, find a different path where you can still do your music. So that, the guy I'm thinking of, brilliant guitarist who said that to me, he, uh, he does video game music. That's his day job. Mm. A lot of like students are like questioning why they're here at Cal Poly and why are they like going to college? Some people are like, why am I studying music? There's a lot of like people coming in to music department or switching out of music just cause like they find out they like music. They don't like music. They don't know what to do with music. I mean, those who have studied here, it's like only a very few times where I hear that they go exactly where they want to go. But a lot of people like end up somewhere, end up like somewhere else, whether they like want to or not, whether it's something better or not as what they thought. Sometimes they end up like do stuff that's on the side or like something that's like completely different as well, which is like completely fine as long as you're okay with it and there's not like any part that you hate about it as well. Yeah. Well, there's a uh, somewhat of a difference between having a career in music and having music as part of your life. 
although there's a lot of overlap between those ideas. And I would say that most people uh, are in the music department at Cal Poly or UCLA are there for a very good reason, which is that they are sensitive people. They, they respond to sound, which means they're musical people. And they want to have music in their lives. They're not sure how that's going to work. And I think most of them do end up with music in their lives. If, and the, the thing there is, it's a thread to follow that makes your life much, much richer and unfolding continuously than other people who don't have that thread, for whom every week is the same week of cycling through entertainments that are forgettable and their job. But if you know, a young person came to me and said, hey, what should I do with my life? I'd say, okay, be a scientist, be a writer, an artist, or a musician. These people have good lives. They have things to follow that are much bigger than they are, that constantly teach them. And you talk to them when they're, you talk to a scientist who's 80, they're still as interested in it as ever. Same with a painter, same with a musician. If they've managed to keep it going, which can be dif difficult, but if they've managed to keep it going, they're not bored. They don't seem old. So, you know, look at the end. So that's why people are in school in music, because they kind of intuitively, they kind of get that. And uh, that's got to be respected, you know. A student in theory one is in a, a peer relationship with me. We both are interested in the same thing. It's a guild. And uh, I got in trouble once when I was invited to go talk at a school. It was, I think, a junior high school. And an alumnus from Cal Poly had invited me to go talk to his class. And uh, I got in trouble because I was telling the students, I don't believe in discipline, I believe in obsession. <laughs> and uh, all I meant by that, uh, you know, half the class looked stunned, but there were about six or seven that said, yeah. Okay, so what I meant by that was, it's a lot easier to do something like music or science like this couple who worked on the vaccine that we were talking about. If you're obsessed by it, then it is to say, oh, I really should do this, you know. Uh, to be a good person, I better practice. Uh, no, you get interested and you get obsessed. And that's, it's a lot of, lot of effort, but it seems, doesn't seem like work. Um, the hard part of music is figuring out what to play. That's the question. And just as if you're a reader, what do you read next? These are hard questions. And there you could use some guidance from people. Sometimes it's your friends who are your guides. You might know someone who's really good at sharing. Hey, have you checked this out? I had friends like that. And I owe them a debt. You know, they, they made me check stuff out. Some people have that gift. But anyway, that's, that's the hard part in keeping the thread going is what are you going to play next? What are you going to listen to next? What are you going to compose next? Otherwise, it's, you know, it's not, otherwise it's come kind of inevitable that it'll be a satisfying life. But that's where the, the trick is. Because when you're younger, everything new is new. And it, of course, has a big impact on your life because your life is only this big. And so just percentage-wise, it's a big deal. 
when you're older, that that game changes. It's much harder for something to be life changing when you're 70, right? Makes some sense. There's good sides to that and bad sides. But um, as musicians, as artists, we really want to find something that is life changing at every step of the way. So the game gets more interesting as it goes. You can't just go down the corner block and find something that's going to change your life with the same regularity. But that doesn't mean it's not there. That's where you really need to go into the past. That's where you really need to go into other cultures. That's where you really need to go into the future and look for things that are exceptional. I noticed that you brought up like obsession. It's like scary. It's a scary word because of like the context of obsession, but obsession is like something that could like lead you to like what you're interested to surrounded by people as well. It'll like guide you. Well, let's take some of those other negative words like addiction. Addiction. Well, people tend to get addicted to things. Could be coffee, it could be a TV show. But why don't you take that power that we all have to be addicted and direct it towards something productive? So you take a negative, oh, you're not supposed to be an addict. You say, no, I'm going to be an addict, but I'm going to be addicted to something that I control and choose to be addicted to. That's all it is. You're using the same impulse, the same so-called weakness, turning it into a strength. I'm addicted to practicing. You do that, you get good. <laughs> Some people are practicing every day, every hour, <laughs> as long as they're awake. How is your creative process like when you are composing something? And like when you're working with others too, I recall that you are part of a duet, um, Guitaria with Alexandria, Alex Gerbarchuk. I like to bring her up because she was actually my choir conductor um, for two choirs back at Chafee, where she was the assistant director and at one of her own um, choirs in San Gabriel Valley. It's been a while, so it's been like over a year since I was like singing under her. But yeah, I was just like wondering, how is that process like? Well, that's an interesting example because I met Alex when she was a grad student at UCLA and I was working with a guitar ensemble on some music from the 16th century that I had transcribed for voice and early guitars and I invited her to take part with the group and when I was rehearsing when I do that I usually rehearse with the singer beforehand before they play with us as a group and so when she and I were rehearsing the, these songs, I immediately felt a connection that was special in what we were doing. And so, as I said, that's not a common thing in, in music making. Um, and I had learned to notice that and respect that. There's many wonderful musicians that I've performed with and played with where that connection is just not the same some, you know, it's more professional, whatever. So as a result, I used her in projects of my own, of my own compositions. And increasing as, increasingly as time went by and we collaborated in that way, as, what happens is as a composer, 
you start composing things with that player in mind, that this would be uh, suited to their temperament, to their sensibility. And the same in my other collaborations, like with Ensemble Fret, um, you compose things, they say, okay, this is gonna be this person's part and this will be that person's part because I can just hear them playing it or doing something interesting with it. Or I can, it would be fun to challenge them or poke them with this part. So it becomes a human interaction, not just dots on the paper, where you are hoping for input and excited about stimulating that in other people, other talented people. Um, so it is a very, it's a kind of collaborative process even before you get together. So Alex, she sings, but she also plays a toy piano on stage. Was it her own bringing of like having a toy piano? No, that was, that was me throwing it at her and saying, do this. Um, and it, it added a component that was uh, added a certain kind of flexibility of moving parts in what we were doing. So really that our duo is a combination of my guitar, her voice as the principal elements, but then she has toy piano. I have, I can, I sometimes sing and play percussion and so those things all inter, interweave to create. It's a way of going somewhere and coming back to somewhere else kind of flexibility so that a particular piece can seem almost like a quartet, then it can be stripped down to just guitar and voice and nothing else. It gives you more, more uh, aspect. But she's a, she plays piano wonderfully, so uh, that was no problem for her, you know, to. Uh, jump in on toy piano. It has its problems. Toy piano is kind of an obnoxious and brash sound. Um, and sometimes that works better than others. It would be very nice to have a portable uh, small keyboard instrument. There's certain things like that that would work well like that on stage. But that's harder to find one that is not uh, obnoxious like the toy piano. Uh, may I ask, how long have you been serving the music department? Uh, I started at Cal Poly in 1981. So this is, I guess, my 40th year, something like that. Oh, uh, my 39th year, I guess. Yeah. Four decades. Yeah. What have been your favorite memories being part of the Cal Poly Pomona community, whether it's teaching a class, um, being with the guitar ensemble, lesson with students? Well, that would be people, you know, the, the colleagues, the students, the staff, the people that I've worked with, who they were, what they valued, uh, their senses of humor, uh, their seriousness, uh, all of those things put together uh, in the different packages that people have. Some of my uh, past students have gone on to very interesting things in music uh, with the Los Angeles Electric 8, uh, an octet of electric guitars, to Featherwolf by, run by Felix Salazar, an amazing uh, prog rock avant-garde group, to all kinds of things. Uh, Eric Pham, who's now getting his doctorate at, at USC and just released a wonderful uh, kind of uh, expressionistic rock album. 
called Castle Heights. It's extraordinary work. So those are, in a way, they're not so much memories of what I, I experienced at Cal Poly. Yes, they are followings through on extraordinary people. Um, and at Cal Poly is, is a special place. We get people who come here fresh out of high school. We get people who come here after 15 years of, of, a loss, of lost years where they got involved in drugs and rock and roll and crash and burn and they're coming back and pulling themselves together and they do amazing things. Uh, you know, it, it's, an, it's not a typical place. It's a place where people can open up their minds to other instruments, other styles, other genres in ways that at, at another music school they would not be really permitted to do. Um, they might discover that they're a composer. They might discover that they, were, they liked the instrument they're playing, but this one is more suited to them, these kinds of things. It's a place where people can pivot towards who they are. Uh, so those are the things that I remember, those kinds of, they're more like flavors. Of course, there were great concerts and interesting things, classes, but that's always the case. I was just about to ask what are your like biggest accomplishments in Cal Poly, but I felt what you just said is like accomplishments as well. Just like leaving a legacy. Right. What I was talking about was more like from the teacher angle, from the personal creative angle, uh, in terms of accomplishments. I would say that Cal Poly was also useful to me in this way, in that, you know, here I was a classical guitarist and a duo guitarist in a professional group. But for example, I had this idea that I was going to write a puppet opera about the Watts Towers, this folk, folk masterpiece in downtown LA. And I thought, well, that doesn't fit in at all with what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but at Cal Poly, that was like, sure. Yeah, set it up, put on the show. Um, and in those days, there wasn't actually that much competition for the re the recital hall. It was brand new, and uh, there were fewer majors and fewer events. So it was kind of wide open, and uh, it was very useful to me to be able to produce and put on some of my more experimental things that were a real divergence from the straight and narrow path of what I was supposed to be doing. And I learned over time, other people talk about this, you know, if something seems like the wrong thing to do, but it keeps coming up in your mind and no one else is doing it, maybe you should do that thing, you know, maybe that's what that means. And uh, then it feeds back in to the other things that you are supposed to do. You're a better zoo guitarist because you did that crazy puppet opera. So, yeah, there's there's some touchstone events like that that uh, were very helpful to me. We used to have a connection with the downtown center in Pomona, and I did some performances of that piece down there, for example. Uh, yeah, so it, uh, in, on that side too, it's been very, very helpful. If you want to see some expert excerpts from the Crazy Puppet Opera, you just go to my YouTube uh, channel and you need to look up among the 60 odd, whatever they are, Radio Rodia, R-A-D-I-O-R-O-D-I-A. 
under Peter Yates YouTube and you'll see some crazy clips from that puppet opera. I'll definitely link anything that you know. What does he mean, weird puppet opera? Okay, well, you'll find out. <laughs> I just have like one last question. So you play an instrument called the arpeggion or arpeggione. Mm -hmm. um, would you care to explain what it, that is? Yeah, sure. Um, I always had had in mind as a guitarist what it might the expressive potential that would be possible if I could play it with a bow the way a cellist does. And I knew that there was an instrument called the bass viol or viola da gamba. And I had played one briefly when I was in graduate school. And I said, yeah, this is suited to me. So at home, I had a cello kicking around that my aunt had given me. And so one weekend, I adapted it into a six string bowed instrument that I could put frets on and tune like a guitar. And so I played that for a while. And I had a very good sense of what I wanted it to sound like. So I, I got pretty good at it very fast. I was having a re rehearsal with a flute player for a concert we were doing of all new music for guitar and flute. And he saw it lying on a counter and he said, what's that, an arpeggione? And then I thought, I said, wow, I bet that is an arpeggione. And the reason is Franz Schubert in 1823 or so wrote a piece, 1825, he wrote a piece that we call the arpeggione sonata for an instrument called the arpeggione and, and for piano. But when you read about it, it was always, the arpeggione was described as a weird bowed instrument. It was never called a bowed guitar, which is what it was. So I did a little bit of reading. I said, oh, I've reinvented the arpeggione without realizing it. Um, and so then I got into the history of the arpeggione, which was very short-lived. It lasted about 10 years for a number of reasons that I could go into. Um, but then in the world, there was one other person uh, in Belgium who was also interested in the arpeggione as it starting from the standpoint of a uh, being a cellist and so there were sort of two of us in the world doing this crazy weird instrument uh, and i got involved with it a lot you know i could give concerts where i would play you could play it like a guitar you could play half the piece plucked and half the piece bowed it was very interesting i did run into some uh, physical problems associated partly with playing it uh, and how it, how one sits and so forth. So that caused me to have to put it away, put it down at a certain point uh, with great regret. Um, but that's just what happens when you get older sometimes, you know. You, you always wonder, why, what are they talking about, you know, with this repetitive stress or whatever? And then, and then you get it, you know. So, so for that reason, I decided to lighten up on that in order to, you know, just I could adapt better on the guitar and I wanted to continue playing. I didn't want to have to not play anything. So I put that down and just concentrated on adapting to the guitar in ways that allowed me to keep playing. But I've had some students get interested in it and pick it up. Some guy uh, came at wanted to 
involved me in producing arpeggiones in China. I said, I don't have time. Here's the specs. Go to China and do it. And then a few years went by. I thought I'll never hear from him again. But then someone contacted me and said, I want to do arpeggione. Is this a good instrument? And there it was. It was made in China. <laughs> well, I have one of those. They kind of screwed up. They didn't follow my specs exactly. So uh, I'm pretty sure that has ceased production because to make mine functional required a lot of work on my end. You know, putting in a sound post, uh, setting it up, changing the string length and things like that. But that was interesting. That is interesting. I was just going to ask, what's the accessibility to play the instrument like the arpeggione since it's okay. more rare? There is, there is a guy named Jonathan Wilson who works now in the uh, near Ventura. Uh, he has a shop up there and he builds bowed guitars. Uh, he calls them um, guitar vials. And he makes them in various ways. He makes electrics, he makes acoustics. Uh, so you can contact him and get instruments uh, of various types through him, although he's probably got a backlog of orders, I don't know. Um, and then there's ways of adapting, as I mentioned, uh, quarter-sized cellos to make arpeggiones, and I've, I've done that with several students. So if someone's really keen on it, they can always reach out to me, and if I'm in the right mood, I'll say, sure, I'll help you do it. Um, aside from that... I'm not sure that you can still buy an arpeggione. The, the Chinese company had no idea how to string it. Mm. And that's a big problem, really big problem. And one of the reasons I think that the arpeggione uh, fell away back in the 19th century is because it is difficult to figure out how to string the thing. Um, when I made my first one, it cost me, as I said, 300 bucks for an old quarter-sized cello. Um, but to figure out how to string it, probably cost me $1,500 just of buying strings and buying strings, and buying strings. So people would need guidance and I'm not sure, I haven't followed recently how that's looking. Um, but you get three types of people involved. Me, this cellist, Nicolas uh, Delatai, he's a cellist. And then the rock and rollers who remember Jimmy Page trying to scree and scraw on his electric. You get people like that too. It's cool. Would you say it would be like valid just to like play, just like have a bow and like an electric guitar and just kind of have that to act as like some kind of boat instrument? Well, yeah. uh, um, my son was telling you about an interview he, he read or heard with John Lennon. And in the room where the interview was being held was a tuba. Uh, and someone asked, and well, Mr. Lennon, you know, there's a tuba over there. Do you think, uh, what do you think? Could you, uh, you think you could figure out something on the tuba? And he said, I'm an artist. I could make it sound great. So yeah, everything's valid. Uh, if you have a sensibility uh, and something in mind into the way a sound could be, you could take a uh, bow and electric guitar and, and come up with great things. The range of expression that it would have would be limited just because of the awkwardness of the setup. But within that range, you could do good things. Um, Andres Segovia, a great classical guitarist, said, I always had in mind the expressive potential of the, of the instrument. And that seems like a simple enough idea. I had in mind the expressive potential of the instrument. 
But you can hear that in every note of his playing, and you can hear the absence of that in the playing of others. So whatever instrument you play, have in mind its expressive potential, and then you will find it. With arpeggioni, it was the same with me. I, I had in mind very clearly what I wanted to do with that instrument, and uh, there it was. Um, you know, once I started playing, because I, I knew what I was after. So if you have that glimmer, you got to follow that. So if you want to take your bow to your electric bass, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I do have a bow, have an electric <laughs> bass. I could do it now, but we are recording a podcast. <laughs> I might do it after the podcast. Okay, good. <laughs> I would like to speak on the behalf of the music department that the students, the faculty, the staff would like to thank you for your years of serving for the music department and all you have to offer. Would you like to say anything, any closing remarks, advice, word of wisdom? Uh, probably have given too much of that, but I would say <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm always an email away, assuming I can convert over my email over to a new machine, which I'm told is doable. Um, so yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be around if people have, uh, you know, questions or uh, want to share anything with me or make an arpeggione or whatever. I'm very present based. I don't uh, look backwards, forwards, except for the positive things that they have to offer. And uh, so I don't have regrets or in a way, I'm not really a sentimental person. I'm interested in the here and now and what is interesting about other people and what we're trying to do. So uh, I cheer you all on. I'm sure great things will happen without me being there every day. And of course, COVID has gotten us a little used to that. No one's there every day. So anyway, thanks to all. Thank you, Henry, for uh, doing this, and Teresa and Sarah for helping. And I look forward to uh, checking them all out. It sounds it's a great project. It's great that you decided to get involved, Henry. Definitely. Um, where may the audience be able to reach you, like on social media? Uh, where can they like listen to your works as well? Yeah, I would say just go to the YouTube channel. If they want to reach out to me, just use my Cal Poly email, which I do check. P.F. Yates. Peter Franklin Yates, P.F. Um, so that's my most reliable way to be reached. Uh, social media, you, you know, I suppose I have an account there somewhere still, but uh, I wouldn't be checking it. Um, although that might change. You know, we talked about that once that I'm, I'm no longer... Uh, answering a lot of email and blah, 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 who knows? So that could always change. Uh, I just uh, keep things simple at any given moment, depending on how much is happening. So, but email would be the best. All right, email, or you can type in Pure Yates Guitar, or you can just type in Arpeggione. I once typed in Arpeggione, and the first thing that came up was like an image of you playing Arpeggione. Yeah, so that's, that's a good uh, <laughs> window to get you to my uh, YouTube. Definitely look him up if you want to hear him play the arpeggione. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Dr. Yates, for being here today. My pleasure. Carry on. And I also want to thank Teresa Kelly, the one who proposed of this like podcast idea for the music department. So yeah, we have reached 
to the end of our podcast right now. CPP Music Couches, thank you for tuning in.